Welcome to Sassy. I'm Annie Merlowski and I'm your host. Each week we share the inspiring stories of female leaders throughout the tech industry. Thanks for joining us as we dive into the inspiring stories of career growth and development from women who are leading technology as we know it. Today we are welcoming Colette Natif, fractional CMO, former head of growth at MileIQ, and founder of Lightning AI onto the Sassy podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Colette. I'd love for you to start off by giving us a little intro about yourself and the role that you're in today. Yes, absolutely. So, hi, I'm Colette. I've been working in digital marketing for about 10 years. I've managed more than $150 million in ad spend. I've sent like 20 million plus marketing emails. And right now I am in the process of building up a digital marketing agency and growth consulting business. That's awesome. That's fantastic. What kind of led you to take this path with your career? Luck. (laughs) A lot of luck. So originally my plan was uh, to go to grad school. I was going to be a professor teaching economics. I love teaching and I thought that that was going to be fun. So I was like one semester into grad school when I realized I didn't actually like school. So that made it that made that that career path a little challenging for me. <laughs> so I ended up leaving with my master's and dropping out of the PhD program. I ended up in San Francisco. I talked to a few recruiters and it was like, here's all the things that I can do. Like, is this a job? And I ended up meeting a CMO at a very small startup called Mile IQ, who really just took a shot on me. He was like, you've done some experience with marketing. You've had like one job before, (laughs) so but you seem smart. So you can like handle this. And that really like launched my career, both in marketing and also in, in tech and in startups. So I stayed there. Was there a year? We got acquired by Microsoft, which was very fun because I was like, oh, startup life is so great. Everybody gets acquired. This is like an amazing and exciting place to be. Like, isn't it really fun to have an exit? And it was fun to have an exit. It turns out not everybody gets acquired. (laughs) So so I worked for one other company after that. And then I started my own business in 2016. It was an AI company back before that was cool called Lightning AI. And we had an algorithm that automatically created and managed Facebook ad campaigns. So I ran that for six years and sold at the end of last year. That's awesome. So you've had two exits so far. I mean, one was a good exit and one was kind of a fire sale, I would call it. <laughs> but I've definitely had a lot of startup experience. That's awesome. And that's I feel like that's kind of the gamble with startups that nobody really thinks about is that that, that is technically an exit, but it's not n- normally what you would think of. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure my investors would have been really happy if I paid them back. (laughs) So it's it's funny when people talk about exiting, because it's like, what does that really mean? And I think some people like really hit it big, and they have like amazing success. And that's awesome. And that's definitely what happened to me in my first job um, with Microsoft acquisition. But it's also like, not, it's not normal. I mean, it's like 1% of companies, not even. So I think my experience and story with Lightning AI is probably more emblematic of a traditional like, founder experience where it's a lot of like ups and downs, a lot of struggles, a lot of really hoping that the ideas that you have are going to play out in the way that you want them to. Well, and I think to that point that, you know, not every tech company is a unicorn. How do you think people who are looking at going into a tech career should think about when they receive equity? And what what value should they have that whole, Mm -hmm. you know, not knowing what direction it's going to go? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's such a hard question about how do you know, like the kind of trade-off between comp and equity. And I would say in general, like there's kind of two ways that I, I think about equity when I'm like evaluating any type of offer. And one is like, does this seem like a company that's really going to exit? And uh, you know, what is, and what does that exit look like? So earlier this year, back when I was interviewing for jobs, because I thought that would be my future, I was talking to one company and it was like, I met with the CMO I would have been working under, I met with the CEO. And like on my side, the research was I vetted the CEO. So I found out everybody who we had in common. I looked up the investors. There were people who we knew and the company was like on a trajectory to IPO. And I feel pretty I feel like reasonably confident that that would happen. And so I would have pushed like very hard on the equity side there. Small startups, you don't know, like there's no way to know. And like, there's some things that are going to make it easier or harder. Like do the founders have previous exits? Is this their first company? Is this their first time? Like, are there investors? Is this VC backed? What is the current runway? What are like the growth projections? But really, like when you're thinking about any type of equity offer, you have to be thinking of yourself as an investor of the company because that's like you're you're not only receiving part of the company, but you're also like putting in your time and deciding where your effort is going. And that's like the most crucial element of all of it is like where where do you want to focus and spend your time? So I always tell people like it's totally fine to ask for a lot of financial metrics. Like you shouldn't feel shy about it. And if the founders are sketchy about it, then that's like your answer. No, that's totally fair. And I think that's great advice. You mentioned runway, which I know what a runway is, but I'm not sure if all of our listeners do. Would you say how you would explain runway mm-hmm. to someone who is earlier stage in their career? Yeah. So runway is like, how many months do you have of cash flow in the bank? And uh, so typically people will calculate runway and the way that I thought of runway was like, there's kind of two, there's two numbers. Like one is if everything failed and fell apart, can you make payroll for the next like month? And, you know, most of the time that's not going to happen. Like you're probably not joining a company where there's no sales. The other question is like, given the current state of sales, like how many months do you have before you run out of money? So typically companies who are raising money in particular, they are operating at a loss. And so month over month, they're they're losing money. And so you want to find out how much they have in the bank in order to be able to support that loss. Also, as a marketer, you want to make sure that their budget is going to be large enough to do anything that you're going to need and want to do. So I, I think that's like definitely a struggle that I faced where I was working with one client and we were really successful. We grew really, really fast in the first six months. And they were like, oh, I'm out of money. And I was like, what are you going to do now? <laughs> like, what's your what's your plan? And there really wasn't a plan because they hadn't expected to be so successful in advertising. So there, there's a lot of there's a lot of financial questions that go into marketing, and you shouldn't be afraid to ask what they are. I think that's fantastic advice because, especially you know, looking at if you're just going to run paid media. You don't want to have to say, okay, I only have enough money for a month and a half of paid media. You need to know ahead of time that you're going to be able to be sustainable for several months because it may take, especially in SaaS, it may take, you know, four months before you even see that first deal close. What's also incredible to me is like the amount of founders who have been able to raise, even though they are only technical founders. So it's like a team of technical founders 
uh, who have gotten together and they spend a ton of time building their product. They have like a really big engineering team. They're making their first marketing hire and they have no budget for marketing. I talked to a few founders earlier this year and I was like, yeah, your budget for marketing, like at the very, very minimum, needs to be like 25 grand a month. And they were like, ooh, that's kind of a lot. And I was like, no, you're just getting started. Well, and what do they think they should be spending on marketing in that sense? If they're looking to bring in somebody to lead up their marketing efforts and they don't have a, a budget of 25000 which I feel like is not that much in the grand scheme of things, where Low, are they thinking totally. they're going to spend their time? Yeah. No clue. Like, they talked a lot about SEO and I was like, SEO takes like a year. (laughs) I think Monday.com is like such a great example of an SEO success story now where I see them like all the time, anytime that I, they're like a time they do Gantt charts primarily that are like becoming a Jira competitor. So kind of tracking and, and management. And they wrote, I think it was like 200 articles or something in a year and their SEO just like exploded. That's, but it takes a year. Well, and that means that they had to have a runway planned out past that point before they even started, right? Totally. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, if somebody says to you, like, hey, my marketing budget is zero dollars, it's like, okay, follow-up question. When do you expect to see results for marketing? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great point. Because it's definitely possible. I mean, like, All Trails is such a good example of that. They've never done any paid media and maybe they have now. I This is like pre-COVID. This is pre-COVID thought. So that was actually like quite a while ago. But at that point, they were still like a kind of household name app. And they never did any paid media marketing because they didn't need to. And that's like awesome for them. It's not normal. Yeah, I think that especially their subject matter, they got in really on the ground floor of their subject matter and had all of that domain authority before they even had content for all of the totally. that were listed. And yeah, I mean, also cool. like great plug for putting the search terms that you want to rank for in the name of your company. <laughs> so, so definitely like a little strategic there, um, especially in the app store when they, I mean, when they launched in the app store it was so many years ago, like you could just be the only company that would pop up when you search for trail map. Oh, absolutely. Like, I think that so many companies now, because we're all just trying to find a domain that's available without some obscure .com on the end of it, that <laughs> random words now. Oh, no, I'm lightning.media. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean it. That was not meant directly at you. <laughs> but, like, I've seen some that they're, like, real products the and they don't The struggle food. is real. <laughs> it is. It's, it's, yeah. The internet, unfortunately, is it's a, uh, it's dense, a lot denser than it used to be. So for most of these roles in tech, these jobs didn't exist when we were all kids. So what was it that you wanted to be when you grew up? Yeah. So when I was a kid, I definitely like, I always thought that I was going to be a teacher. That was my expectation for how my life would turn out. I look back on it now and it's like so obvious to me that I was meant to be an entrepreneur. And I'm like, how did nobody just like tell me? But you know, we all have to kind of like go through our life and our own little journeys and, and figure it out. But for me, that was like, I mean, that was definitely my path. Like I went into grad school thinking I was going to be a professor and I spent the first like whatever kind of quarter of my life thinking that that was going to be the path forward for me. So, I mean, stumbling into tech was something that was like, I, I, I mean, I joke that it's luck, but it really was. I think it really was because they came out to San Francisco and mostly I was like, man, it's really expensive here. I kind of need a job. And I, I just happened to be really 
good at marketing and really good at startups and really good at making businesses. Do you think that educational spirit, the the desire to teach people still ties into how you run your business today? Yeah, absolutely. I had a CEO who would always say like he hires people who want to teach and people who want to learn. And I think that's really critical in the path to success of having any type of team cohesion, but also people who are like who are innovators who want to strive to move forward. And especially in marketing, like there's so many new technologies that are coming out right now. And if you're not a person who's excited about learning, you won't find them and you're if you're not first or kind of last. So there's there's a lot to catch up on. There's a lot to do. And if you're a person who's excited about that, I think it's a, a really phenomenal place. Awesome. So as far as, you know, your actual career and kind of you've walked us already through your journey a little bit, and I think I, I might know what, what you're going to say based on what you've already said, but was there a challenge that you had to overcome and, and how did you do that? It's like, how many challenges can you possibly list out within an hour of like the startup life? Like, it's just like, it's every, every day is like a roller coaster journey. I would say like, it's funny to me now because the biggest struggle that I faced early on with my startup was literally like, collecting like collections. So I people like I, I had like a few big clients and they were like, is it okay if we pay you through wire transfer? And I was like, yeah, whatever. I don't care. Like, of course, you're gonna pay me you're this giant company. And they would consistently pay like at least 30 to 45 days late. And that's actually like a standard tactic that big companies use when they have very small like contracts with little companies. And that was probably like my first like realization of like, oh, this is this is like a challenge. Like, how do you plan for things when you have a contract, you may or may not get paid on like the due date for that contract. But no matter what, you still have employees and you have payroll that you have to meet. And that that was definitely the first moment where I was like, this is a surprise how hard this is. Well, you're right about that being a standard. It's absolutely boggling to me that companies that if you were their customer, they would expect you to pay them on a monthly basis. They pay all Mm -hmm. the dollars in a six-month accrual. No, it's insane. And I mean, I ended up switching so that except for very large contracts, everybody was on, I think it was like, unless you were... I forget what the monthly was, but it was at least $10,000. Unless you were spending at least $10,000 a month, you were paying with a credit card. And I was like, I will 100% eat this like 3% fee so that I know that this money is coming into my bank account at a certain point in time and I can like plan on it. And it's frustrating because 3% of like $9,000 is a lot of money. But that peace of mind was just so crucial. No, that's totally smart. And I think that that's, that's one of the struggles too, when you're at a bigger company and you don't have the a- approval ability to have credit cards for things and you have to flight things through bigger, you know, Mm -hmm. bigger purchase orders. And it it becomes this like chicken and egg situation because you want to work with these smaller businesses and you can't. And it makes it where you have to then go work with, you know, people who can deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting how, and what's shocking to me is like how many contractors, consultants, like freelancers use, like sign someone else's agreement and like don't have lawyers, don't have a legal review. They just like accept it and move on. And that's really scary because the big companies have like a lot of lawyers and you really want to make sure that like your intellectual property is going to be valued and that you're going to be able to retain it and that that you're not signing away your rights for something that you might be working on in conjunction with whatever work you're doing for this company. So like 
accountants and lawyers are people who everybody complains about paying, but like you kind of have to. Oh, absolutely. Especially as a freelancer, if you're doing anything that's strategic, it's you have to have your paper has to be just rock solid or else they're going to take you straight to the bank. Uh-huh. Exactly. Like, I mean, it's it's frustrating. And I think it's hard that kind of smaller companies and the individual like get taken advantage of. But it's also part of the world. And it's funny now because I like look back on my time as a founder originally, and everybody told me to ra- I raise like right under a million dollars. And everyone told me to raise like triple that. And I was like, No, but I don't need it. So why would I take it? And now I'm like, Oh, because I wouldn't have been worried about like this credit card thing. <laughs> That's totally fair. And I think that that's, you only learn that by doing it, right? Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't know that until it happens. No. And even if my investors have been like, Colette, you really need to take another $2 million because people aren't going to pay you on time and you're going to be stressed out about like how to make payroll. I would have been like, no, (laughs) who doesn't pay on time? That's crazy. That's, that's a really, you do think that like that should just be the standard. And I've even had that that same conversation internally with my AP team. And I'm like, no, no, but we really do need to pay this bill. Mm-hmm. And they're like, it's okay. It's fine. They'll take them. <laughs> such a mess. Yeah. <laughs> so kind of pivoting a little bit about to, you know, your role as not just, you know, a tech leader, but as a woman in tech, how do you maintain a work-life balance? And do you think that that is different for women than it is for men? Okay, so I'll answer this question kind of twice. And the first part of my life is like before children, and then there's the like after children. So before kids, I would say my work-life balance was like extremely poor. I was working all the time and like whatever life was was just like things in support of work. So I'd like be going to marketing events and like networking and like meeting other people in marketing, which for me at the time was like, isn't this so fun? I'm going to like a dinner for marketing thought leaders. But now I realize that's actually just another extension of work. So I would say that that was like just not there. I was in San Francisco. And I think the Bay Area kind of creates a culture that emboldens people to work all the time. And I was getting rewarded for working all the time. And I was also running my own business. And so I was like, well, the more I put into this, the more I'm getting out of it. And there was just no, there was no work-life balance. It just didn't exist. Post-children, I had to have work-life balance, not only because like kids are hard and demanding of time, but also because it was like COVID right after. So I had my first son December, 2019. And basically as soon as I like got back from maternity leave, we locked down. And so there was just like, there was no choice. And so that like work-life balance where it was all work shifted to kind of like all life. And I think I I really just like stumbled into it over time. So now I have a nice balance, I would say, where I'm working like enough that I feel kind of challenged and inspired and creative. And I feel like I'm using my brain, but I also like get off work and I'm actually not working. I definitely think it's harder for women. I mean, you can look at any of the statistics about like, how many hours do women do of household chores or of childcare versus men? And I did, there was one like floating around on Instagram that was like, if even when men are stay at home parents, women still spend an equal amount of time on childcare and house and house chores. So <laughs> I don't know, maybe we'll need to find new partners <laughs> and change that, change that narrative and change that story and change those statistics. But in the meantime, I think, you know, the reality is that a lot of the burden, whether intentional or not, is falling on women. And it's kind of our job to set boundaries and rules and restrictions on what that looks like and means. 
Well, I think that that's entirely accurate advice. And I think that you have to have a partner that you can really have an open conversation about. And to whatever extent, you know, depending on what generation you're raised by, some of those behaviors are just in set, like whether we want them to be or not. Mm-hmm. Do you yeah, you got to find somebody who's ready to break the generational trends. Absolutely. And, you know, who knows, maybe by the time, you know, all of our kids are, are adults, it will finally completely shifted and there will be more of that equality in what is, you know, the women's work. I have two boys, so I really hope so. Well, yeah, you got to raise them to, to see that, you know, your work is their work and that it isn't a gendered work behavior, right? <laughs> totally. Renee Brown has a segment about like family focus and it's essentially like, it's not like it's my job or your job or like someone's job. It's like it's everybody's. And so we all have to pitch in and figure out like, what are the things that we can do this week that we can commit to? And how does that manifest long term? So I'm excited to be putting that into play in my life and hopefully have future daughter-in-laws who are really excited to be married to my son. Well, that's kind of a good way to think about it is that you want to raise your boys to be the kind of men that you would want to marry, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I think that's a really wise thought when you think about it like that. Do you think that the work-life balance is part of why you've chosen the path that you're on now doing, you know, more of your own thing than being, you know, embedded in a tech company? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's kind of two reasons why I ended up deciding to work for myself following my last job instead of like finding (laughs) I call it a real job but like finding a job where I like have have a a boss and like work at a work at a company and I would say that one is just like the market right now is kind of just like weird because there are so many tech layoffs that people who are laid off are like extremely high quality workers and so the market is like very competitive and I wasn't like (laughs) I wasn't I wasn't thrilled about the equity portion in particular of offers that were coming through. The other side of the market thing is like during COVID, people raised insane amounts of money. Like 2021 was just like free for all of money. And so right now companies have valuations that maybe don't make sense. And when your valuation is too high, that means the value of your equity is just like a lot lower. And I kind of just felt like that was like that whole time, all of the things put together about the timing just like felt off and wrong to me. What I what's also nice about like working for yourself is like you set your own hours, you determine your own schedule. And so for me right now, I work like in the mornings and then I take the afternoon off and then like I work back again at night. And that's been something that's been like awesome for my family because I can spend a lot of time like with the with the kids. So that's maybe a little bit more like kid focused than family focused. But it's been that that's been really nice. And I, I have a bunch of friends up here who like work only at night and are able to to kind of calibrate a, a little bit differently. And when you're working for yourself, you have that flexibility in ways that you wouldn't otherwise. That's awesome. That's really smart to, you know, almost work like a swing shift, especially when you have kids, if they go to bed really early. Yeah. I can see how that would be really helpful. Oh, yeah. My kids go to bed at 730. That's like a very strict rule in my house. So um, 730 to 10 is like my actually, honestly, but I also kind of naturally like work well at night. So that's, that's just like fallen in in a really nice way. 
No, that totally makes sense. And, you know, you think about that, you know, at least when I was in school, it was a very much like everyone has different learning styles. And I think that's starting to play more Mm -hmm. in our professional lives where it's not just your learning style. It's that, yeah, you're like, there are some people that their brain does not turn on until they've been up for two hours. And that means that they have to get, you know, eight hours of sleep. And that means 10 a.m. is when their brain starts to function. A hundred percent me. I was just telling that to one of my friends today. She was like, I just wake up so happy. And I was like, I am not that person. <laughs> we are not the- then kind of flipping over to, you know, obviously as a, as a founder and somebody who raised money, you probably experienced some bias as a woman in tech. And I'd be curious, like what kind of, what did you experience fundraising? I know that the stats, I don't know what they are offhand, but the stats about women who fundraise and start companies is a lot less obviously than, than men. So what did you experience in that process? And then how did you handle it and overcome it? Yeah. So uh, I think it's important to say that like I was raising when I was 26 and I probably looked like I was 19. So I like came into these meetings seeming very young. And as a result of that, I had, I don't even know how many men say something along the lines of, I really hope my, are you like, you remind me of my daughter. Like, I really hope my daughter is like you when she's your age. And men think that that is a compliment And it's actually extremely offensive to compare someone who is a professional person trying to like do a pitch to you to your daughter who is eight. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's crazy. (laughs) So that happened a lot. One time I was pitching to it was a group of angel investors and everybody was like sitting around a conference table. So they came in and we're like chit chatting, whatever, waiting for everybody to come in. And this one woman comes in and she's like, oh, my God, you're a woman. I was like. We shouldn't be surprised by that. No, yeah. Like, what do we need to do as a community to make that to where that's not shocking when people come into a group of angel investors? Like, it should be 50-50, right? Yeah. (laughs) If anything, like, women are way more organized. Like, we should be doing this more. I think there's a lot of, like, fear when it comes to starting a business. And, I mean, I think that, like, I'm a victim of that myself, like, I, this year, I mean, it's like one of the reasons why I was even applying for or interviewing for like full-time job positions earlier this year was like, eh, I kind of like need to be in that mindset. You know, I don't know if I can do this again. Like I'm tired, like whatever. I think there's like a laundry list of excuses that you can come, that you can come up with at any point of like why it's a bad idea to start a business. But there's also like so many amazing things that happen as a result of it. And like right now, because I'm at the very beginning, like I work hard and things are hard and I need to find out like, what does my client makeup look like? What are my offerings? What is my pricing? Like, what are kind of all of these things and how do these pieces fit together? But once those things are done, like the opportunities for success are just like endless. And I think especially if you like have young kids, I do the opportunities to change your schedule or like fit in more when you're when you are in charge are are just phenomenal. And I mean, women also like attract very strong women to work for them. So I, I think it's like a cycle that, that continues where when you're a founder, when you're a female founder, you find people who are just like incredible and they're excited to work with other women because we are more perceptive of what the struggles are and what the realities are for women in tech. I think that's awesome. I think that that is all of that's very true, right? That's, that's, I want to work with women who I think are really strong women. Not that I don't want to work with men, but 
there's you see women in tech and I, for some reason I find that like very inspiring knowing that you know it's more challenging and, and sometimes it is a bit of a struggle and obviously that's even why we're having this conversation right because I'm inspired by women in tech and want to hear their stories I mean there are definitely some days where I don't want to work with them so I think it's okay to say <laughs> <laughs> that's very it does it is it does depend on the day right I think there's some days where I don't want to work with myself too so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally <laughs> So just to kind of wrap things up, I think the one last thing I'd love to cover is if you had one piece of advice to women who are looking at considering a career in the SaaS space, what would you say? Say be unafraid, be unafraid, be unapologetic, and don't be nervous to sell yourself because every other person is doing it. So I ask the question all the time, like, if you were a man, what would you like, what would your story be? And I say that to myself, too. I'm like, if I were a man, how would I be spinning the story? And if that answer is different than the one that you're going to give, like, you need to figure out why. So like, don't be nervous to pitch yourself. Don't be nervous to think of your own success and to advertise it out because no one else is advocating for you. No one else will advocate for you. And you have to advocate for yourself. That is some fantastic advice. Thank you so much, Colette, for joining us today. I really appreciate you telling your story and I hope everybody enjoyed hearing from you as well. Yes, thank you so much. It's great to meet you and talk on your podcast. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Sassy. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or join us on LinkedIn at Sassy Podcast to stay in the know about future episodes and guests.